Amen. Well, I've been enjoying this 40 days of prayer a great deal. And uh, just how God has been hearing and answering. It's been a pretty amazing thing. Uh, and just the way it's providentially worked out. Um, some of it's planning, but some of it, honestly, is just the Lord's providence. So the first week of our time, we prayed for our kids and for um, our teenagers. And right around that time, we began searching for a new minister to youth. Uh, we put together a search team. The search team is met. The funds have, are there. And uh, we just this week went live with our application. So I mean, we're live with the job description. It's out there now. So be praying. Be praying that, the, that God, we believe God has the right person in mind already. That person's out there, whether he's going to, to North Point Bible College or Gordon-Conwell or wherever. Um, and that God connects that application with, with him and that they come together. So that's, that's our prayer. But right around that time, we're praying. We're also getting that group together and getting it out there. Then we prayed for our city uh, and for sister churches. And right around that time, we had our United Night of Prayer that we happened to be hosting. Um, and that was planned months ago, but it worked out perfect that we brought in some sister churches, some folks from the sister churches, and we prayed together for our city. We had sort of prayer uh, stations around this sanctuary, and um, what a great, rich time in, in prayer. Week after that, we prayed for our church specifically, and that the Lord would provide for us. And again, I had mentioned one of our specific prayer requests. We prayed for a lot of different things, but one was for a truck and plow. To, Winter's coming. Uh, this year we wanted to get our own truck and plow and uh, save a lot because of uh, the, the cost. And we, by God's grace, that week uh, we found a truck and purchased a truck. And it's sitting in the back parking lot uh, as we speak. And then this previous week, coming up to this Sunday, we were praying for our country and for our government. And it just providentially happened that myself and Mitch and my wife uh, Jess we were in D.C. And I had the opportunity just to walk around. Um, and to pray and to, to be there in the city. Um, and I'll just say, if you hear a lot of illustrations about D.C. in this sermon, sorry. Um, I, most of this was written sitting in a Starbucks in D.C. So that's why you're going to hear a lot of illustrations. So I'm, I'm not a particularly political person, and I'm not going to get political in the sermon, but a lot of the illustrations are from D.C. But we've been talking about the, the miracles of Jesus alongside this 40 days of prayer. And we've looked at a lot of different miracles, including the miracle of Jesus calming the storm, uh, which is why we have this picture right behind me. Uh, but today I want to talk about the miracle of the cross. And you might say, I, I didn't really think the cross is a miracle, right? I mean, the resurrection, yes, and we're going to talk about that, Lord willing, next week. But why is the cross, the, the, the death of Jesus, a miracle? Um, Everybody dies. There's 7 billion people on this planet. Um, every one of them is going to die <laughs> if Christ waits to return. Uh, death itself is not a miracle, right? You might say, well, he did die innocently. He wasn't guilty. Um, but a lot of people die innocently. I mean, not innocent of any sin, but innocent of the crime that they've been charged of. Um, people have been put to death for crimes that they haven't committed all throughout history, and it still happens. You know, you ever see those videos of a man who's been locked up because he was falsely accused for 20, 30 years, and he finally gets out of prison? Can you imagine sitting in prison for 20, 30 years? Some maybe even receive the, the death penalty. We said, well, he died on a cross. He died, he was crucified. Well, hundreds, if not thousands of people were crucified. Now, what's the miracle here? <laughs> 
Rick. Why is the, the cross, the death of Jesus, a miracle? And yet I would say it is not only a miracle, it is the greatest miracle of the Christian faith. Maybe only in competition with the resurrection. It is the center of the Christian faith, the greatest miracle of the Christian faith, and the most powerful. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 23, 44 to 49. Uh, There's an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to uh, see where we're going a little bit. Uh, But Jesus' death was a unique and powerful miracle. Perhaps the greatest, the center of the Christian faith. Luke 23. So we've been in Luke throughout this whole series. We're going to stay in Luke here. Uh, 23, uh, 44 to 49. We'll have it on the board as well, on the screen as well. We read this. It was about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Well, the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place... He praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus' death was a unique and powerful miracles. As I said, there's an outline in your bulletin uh, if you want to see where we're going. But we first look at, working at verses 44 to 45, Jesus' death came with supernatural symbols. Supernatural symbols. So look at verse 44. He says it's about the sixth hour. What time of day is that? Well, they, the day began at 6 a.m., which I think makes more sense in some ways than starting at midnight, right? I mean, wh- who's up at midnight unless you're working nights or staying up from the day before? Uh, but if the day, typically people get going on the day at 6 o'clock a.m. Makes sense. So the day starts at 6 a.m. The sixth hour then would be noontime, the absolute middle of the day as we would see it. And there was a darkness over the whole land that lasted until the ninth hour. So if the sixth hour is noon, what is the ninth hour? Mathematicians here. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Now keep in mind, this is the desert. (laughs) This is Israel, which is 80% desert. One of the brightest places to get the most, you know, places that gets the most sun in the world. When we were there as a group, they said you have to be careful. It's it's such a desert that you got to make sure you have water with you at all times uh, because you dehydrate so easily. Uh, This is a sunny place, this is a bright place, a hot place, and yet at the middle of the day, the brightest time of the day, a darkness comes over the land. What's causing the darkness? Actually, we're not exactly told. Some people think it may have been an eclipse. The problem with an eclipse is an eclipse lasts seconds. (laughs) It doesn't last three hours. Uh, Was it a, a, a cloudy day all of a sudden? It got kind of cloudy with these thick rain clouds or... Was this something more directly supernatural? And I'd go with that, that third view. Something directly supernatural comes over the land. And what's the point of the dar- this darkness? Well, darkness is a pretty common image in the Old Testament. It has to do, I think, here with the anger, the wrath of God. That God is displeased with what is happening here. And so this supernatural darkness comes on the land. You can imagine all those people standing there watching Jesus on the cross, all of a sudden shocked at the fact that the sun goes dark. God is not happy. 
Now, what is he not happy about? You might say, well, he's not happy about the fact that his son is being crucified right now. But actually, I don't think that's the point. I think that he's not happy with his son. And you might say, wait wait a minute, hold on, let me explain. At this moment, Jesus is doing something on that cross. He's bearing our sin. He's acting as our atonement, as our sin bearer, the one who is in our place. The great exchange of the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you don't believe that, if you're not with me, you're saying, I don't know, Rick, I don't know about the darkness. Look at what he says next. <laughs> Verse The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, what's he talking about there? Uh, the, curtain, uh, the temple had two pretty important curtains in it. Uh, one of them is sort of on the outside. It's a bigger curtain, and it goes from uh, into the holy place, from the outer courts into the holy place. And into the holy place, uh, the only people that were allowed into the holy place were Jewish men over 13 years of age. Outside of that, everyone else, women, Gentiles, kids, everyone had to be outside of the holy place, except for Jewish men over 13 years of age. Uh, That would be the the most visible curtain, so some commentators and theologians believe that must be the curtain, because they saw it get ripped. So that one gets torn. And if that's the case, that is a pretty important symbol. What's it saying? It's saying that access to God is now open to not just Jewish men, but to women and to kids and to Gentiles, anyone. Uh, the whole world is welcomed into the presence of God, into the holy place there is. But I think that is, but I think uh, actually it's the other curtain. A, a smaller curtain, a lesser, no, a lesser seen curtain. It's the curtain inside the temple, in the holy place, going into the holy of holies. Uh, this was the place that only those who were in the holy place could see And no one was welcomed inside the Holy of Holies, except for the high priest, and that only once a year. This is the description of it from Exodus 26. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim. Remember, those are those powerful angels. A picture of these cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. So the ark of the covenant was in there for a while. Eventually the temple was uh, overtaken. The ark was stolen and taken away, so there was nothing in there. It was an empty room, essentially. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. And we learn actually from the other Gospels that this this veil, this curtain is torn, not from the bottom upward, which would be one thing, because then somebody came in there and ripped it, but from the top downward. And there's a pretty big, tall sailing. God himself has torn open the way into the presence of God. That through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, there is now access into the presence of God. That he is, in a sense, our Yom Kippur. He's our day of atonement. He is our sacrifice who bore for us our sin so that we can now know God individually and personally through Christ. And when does that happen? It happens at the end of these three hours of darkness. Now, here's the interesting thing. You know, we, we may struggle with this because we can't see it. We can't see it. I mean, what, is, what does sin look like? It's not a substance, right? What does evil look like? You could say, well, I know what evil actions look like, certainly, okay? But what does evil itself look like? What does sin look like? What does guilt look like? 
We can't see it with our eyes. It's not a, a physical thing. So it's kind of hard to see this miracle of, of guilt being transferred from us onto someone else or from other human, one human being onto Christ himself. We, we can't see it, but we know it's real, don't we? Uh, if a murderer, uh, after murdering a, a few people, he comes into court, uh, he doesn't look any different perhaps than he looked beforehand, but there is something different, and we know that. On his shoulders, on his head, is guilt. And that guilt must be paid for. Uh, this week, uh, of course, we had a, a big issue with the Supreme Court. Um, and I, not, again, I'm not going to get into any of the details here, uh, but what everyone wanted to know is is he guilty? of this thing that happened 36 years ago. Is he guilty? Wouldn't it be so much easier if you could see guilt? <laughs> if you could just see there's something sitting on his head or not sitting on his head right there. That would make it so much easier, but you can't see guilt. But we all know that guilt is real. Guilt is a real thing. And what we learn here, friends, is that guilt that was on us for all our years of sin has been transferred off of us and put on Jesus. That's the gospel. Because we can't see it, I think God gives us symbols so that we can understand what's going on. That's why we have these three hours of darkness of his displeasure in the middle of the hot, sunny day. That's why we have the temple curtain torn, not by any man, but by God himself. Symbols are are powerful things. One of the things, when I was at D.C., I got to walk around and... D.C. is filled with symbols. I don't know if you knew that. That's, uh, so one of the things we did, we toured the Capitol building. And we, you know, if you ever get a chance to do this, go to the, the Capitol building and take the free tour. Everything's free there because we pay for it, right? That's why it's all free. Our tax dollars pay for everything there, so they, don't, they can't charge you. So uh, you get this nice tour. They kind of go through the whole point of our, of our democracy and where it came from. But he explains how the whole Capitol building is filled with symbolism. I have a picture here. So this is the dome of the Capitol from the inside looking up. That's where I'm standing at that point in time. And one of the things that guy explained to us, he said that the point of a dome is very important because what holds up a dome? What's the load-bearing wall of a dome? The whole dome, right? Every side of the dome upholds the center of the dome. There is no one individual wall that takes the burden, but all together hold it up. And so it is with our democracy. It's, it's, it's something we can't see with our eyes. The idea that all the people in all of our states are supposed to be working together as one. So we use a symbol to kind of show what that would look like. And the dome, it's filled with a bunch of other symbolism. You can see on the top of that there is pictures of Washington and all these different things. A symbol brings out the reality behind it. When it comes to the cross, friends... We see something that cannot be seen. We, we behold something that cannot be seen with our eyes shown to us in symbol. Uh, even when we think of the cross, uh, the, the title of the sermon is The Miracle of the Cross. And by that, I don't mean that the wood uh, structure that sat there 2,000 years ago is somehow in itself a miracle. I mean, the miracle of the cross is the miracle of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. I mean, when we think of a cross now, some people I've heard it said, uh, I hope we haven't exchanged uh, cross-wearing for cross-bearing. That's a pretty cutting comment, I thought. Uh, But when we wear the symbol of the cross, what's the point? Is it just there as a, a symbol of jewelry, something to look good? Or is it there as a reminder to us of what Christ has accomplished for us? I think even as, as Protestants, when we wear a cross, when we look at a cross, or we 
have a cross in our church, you'll notice there's nobody on it, <laughs> right? That's one difference that sets us aside, apart as Protestants. Why is that? Because Christ is risen. He's no longer on the cross. That's what we're trying to symbolize there. Uh, Christ is not hanging on the cross any longer. The tomb is empty. He is risen, and he's alive. Uh, I actually prefer a big old wooden, rugged cross, like, uh, you know, the one that we bring out for Easter, uh, something kind of ugly, <laughs> Because I think that's what's really bringing. I know we have a beautiful gold cross behind me, so I'm not trying to be critical. But I like a big, ugly cross because it brings out what we're really trying to say. This is where Christ bore our sin. This is where the wrath of God and the darkness fell over the land is a symbol of that. Where that guilt that would and should have been on us was transferred on him. Friends, I hope you believe this. The miracle of the cross is that Christ was our sin bearer who died in our place. Look at verse 46 where we see his death, his death itself. Jesus called out with a loud voice. Now that's a miracle itself. Well, that's a, that takes an enormous amount of strength. Uh, the idea of crucifixion is you slowly suffocate to death. Uh, they said this is one of the, the most cruel uh, ways, forms of torture and of death ever created by man. Uh, basically what you're doing is you're hanging on a cross and, and your body weight pushes you down. And then you sort of find the strength to push up even though you're in excruciating pain. Uh, in fact, the word excruciating comes from crucifix, crucify. Uh, but again, then you over time lose your strength and you sink back down. And then you just, before you suffocate, you push back up. And you do this for hours and hours and hours and hours until finally your body weight is too heavy. You don't have any strength left in your body. You fall down and your lungs are constricted and you suffocate and you die. That's a crucifix. So for Jesus here, at, towards the end of his life, to cry out with a loud voice is something extremely unusual. Where is he getting that strength to cry out? And usually there's not, no breath left in his lungs. But he cries out with a loud voice and he starts off with Father. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Jesus' most common way to refer to God. Abba. Uh, dearest Father. Even in this moment, even in this time, as he's hanging on the cross, he looks to God and calls him his Abba, his Father, whom he loves. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, the point being there is uh, my spirit, as it becomes separated from my body, as it dies, I, I put it in your hands, God. Uh, do with it as you will. Uh, my, my son broke his collarbone uh, this week in a soccer game. And, uh, you know, I know that, that parents tend to exaggerate how, how good their kids are at sports. And uh, I don't want to do that. Um, because my kid really is that good at sports. Right? So I'm not going to sit up here and just exaggerate how good he is. I'm just going to tell you that he is that good at sports. But he plays so intense. He went down, took a tumble. They end up winning the game 1-0, by the way. He's, he's defense. Uh, but broke uh, his collarbone. And they're going to decide tomorrow um, whether he has to have surgery or not. Uh, but what am I going to do if he does have surgery? I'm going to have to look at the doctor and say to the surgeon, he's in your hands. <laughs> Uh, it's out of my hands now. He's in your hands. I'm trusting him. I'm trusting his life. I'm trusting this surgery uh, over to you. In the same way, what Jesus is doing here on the cross is saying to the Father, Okay, it's done. It's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Do as you want. And then it says he breathed his last. 
What happened there on the cross? <laughs> what, what exactly happened to Jesus at that moment? Well, his spirit, as we read, uh, departs from his body. And by his spirit, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, different than the second person, than Jesus himself. But Jesus' human spirit, who is forever united with the Son of God, leaves his body and goes into the presence of God as it will for each of us. His, I believe his spirit goes into God's presence at that moment. How do I know that? One, because he says unto your, your hands I commit your spirit, my spirit. But also he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he's saying that's where we're going to be today in paradise. Uh, not sleeping, not in the ground, uh, with you in paradise. That's where we're going to be during this, this time. What happens to his body? His body begins to immediately decay. Uh, the body immediately begins to... Uh, his, his lungs stop breathing. The breath of life is gone. His heart stops beating. The blood stops to flow through his bones. His cells stop working. And he dies. Eventually his body is taken down. It's laid in a tomb. And that's the end. Until the resurrection... Some, have, some heresies have come up and said that Jesus never really died. This was just an appearance because the Son of God could never actually die. Uh, that, or that the Son of God came upon Jesus as just a human being and was with him for a short period of time, three years or whatever. And then here at the cross, the Son of God leaves Jesus' body. And those are all heresies. None of those are true. Jesus truly died. Why is that important for us? Because this is the end for each of us as well. And the hope for each of us as well. Uh, The day is coming, friends, where you and I are going to also meet our end. When the breath of life will leave our lungs. Um, Again, I I feel like I'm getting old. I'm 40 now, which doesn't seem that old. It depends on who you hang out with, right? That's kind of a thing. So when I was in D.C., again, I got an opportunity to spend some time on on Capitol Hill uh, with an event that's for our denomination just one night. Uh, with a nice free dinner and, and an excellent, uh, excellent um, um, lecture. Uh, but when I was there, you think D.C., you think of a lot of old guys, right? No, not really. Actually, D.C. is filled with a lot of 20-something-year-olds who are just working their tails off trying to succeed and their interns and all that. I felt like the old guy. <laughs> I'm 40 years old. I'm like, everyone here is younger than me, and they're all going in this way and that and trying to make something great out of their lives. And but the reality is, for each of us, this day is coming sooner or later. And I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm not trying to be you know, sad or anything this day. But this is just a reality that we find in Scripture. The day is coming when each of us will one day breathe our last breath. But here's the hope of the Christian life, friends. That, on that mo- in that very moment when our bodies stop breathing, when our lungs stop pushing out air and pulling in oxygen, when that day comes... Our spirit will go and be with him. And that we'll be in the presence of God. I don't know what that, there's a lot of mystery that surrounds us. Well, what is that going to be like? What does that look like? How can you see without eyes and hear without ears? And I I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I just know what Jesus says. And I believe him. uh, That we will, our spirits will go to be in his very presence. But that's not the ultimate hope. The ultimate hope is that one day we'll be risen from the dead. And our spirits will be reunited with resurrected bodies. You say, how does that work? I mean, our bodies are going to be long since gone. They're going to be, you know, some of us cremated and some of us, those who died years and years and years ago. And again, I don't have all the answers. I just know that 
what the scriptures tell us, that we will be risen with a new and resurrected body and our spirits will reunite with our body and we will be with the Lord in his presence forever. That's our hope. That's the Christian hope. And and when we set this hope before our eyes, it it changes how we live. Uh, It's one thing to see this world and say, this is all there is and everything I do is only temporary. And it's quite another thing to say, everything we do is temporary in one sense, but I'm living for eternity. That when I leave this body behind, my spirit will immediately be in the presence of God until that day when Christ returns and the resurrection will come. I like what C.S. Lewis said. Uh, I thought it was a great quote. And how you look at the world and how you look at people around you, everything changes when you have the Christian hope before your eyes. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. We think of people as ordinary, but there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Listen to what he says. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. (laughs) But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We're the only things, really, that will outlast everything around us for all eternity in the presence of God. Like Jesus, yes, our bodies will die. But also like Jesus, our spirits will be committed into the hands of God and trust Him in that. And then thirdly, Jesus' death affects everyone who witnesses it. Look at 47 to 49. It affects everyone who witnesses his death. 47, the centurion, so this is a Roman officer, soldier, who is in charge probably of this whole crucifixion. He's the guy in charge. And he says, uh, he looks to Jesus. Uh, it says here, when he sees what takes place, he praised God, the one true and living God. Remember, the Romans did not believe in the one true and living God. They had a multiplicity of gods, but he praises God. And he says, certainly, this man was innocent. Now, how did he know that? What did he see? What did he see that would convince him that Jesus was truly, that would make him praise God and say that Jesus is innocent? Well, maybe he knew a little bit about Jesus from beforehand. That's certainly possible. Maybe he saw Jesus willing to forgive the very people who are crucifying him. Certainly that would have spoke volumes to him. Maybe he saw the way Jesus spoke to the two thieves crucified, one on each side, and the promise he gave to the one, even as the other one hurled insults at him. Maybe it was even the way he sort of loudly was able to speak and address God the Father, even in his last moments there. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're not sure exactly what it is. Maybe it's just the whole thing together. But something in it, he sees and he says Jesus was innocent. Innocent there is is pretty important. The word there is not just without guilt. The word there is actually dikaios, the Greek word. It means righteous. Uh, He's a righteous one. He's not just some guy that accidentally ended up on the cross and he shouldn't have. That's one thing. No, he's something more important. In fact, the other gospel writers somewhat interpretively say he was the son of God. This man, I think, at least begins to come to faith in watching Jesus die. All the crowds, what do they do? Uh, They see what happens and they go home. Uh, Afterwards, they see what takes place and they return home beating their breasts. What's that all about? It's a sign of grief and sadness. Oh, what a horrible thing. The idea is the crowds went there to go see a spectacle. They wanted to see a show. 
And kind of like you saw it, even in early American history, people go out to see a hanging. To us, that sounds just gruesome. Why do people do that? They go out to see a crucifixion, and they leave instead, sadly, and sadness, beating their breasts in grief, what they've seen. Doesn't mean they were converted in any way, just means they felt bad. You know, I remember when The Passion of the Christ came out. Everyone remember that? And so many people wanted to go to the theaters and, and watch it. And a lot of people watched it, um, and they said, oh, so terrible, so horrible, what just happened. Let's go get some pizza. <laughs> right? it, it just made them sad. That's it. I mean, obviously, if you watch a man beaten to death and crucified, it makes you sad. But it had no real heart change to it. I think that's what you have with the crowds here. They watched him being beaten. They watched him die. They felt bad. They beat their breasts, but then they went on with life. Verse 49, we see a little bit of a different response. His acquaintances, literally those who knew him, is the idea, uh, and the women who had followed him from Galilee, so these are people who had followed his ministry over three years, what do they do? They stand away at a distance, so they're still afraid, but they just watch these things. They're just trying to figure this out. What just happened? Uh, we've been following this great teacher, this great miracle worker. Remember, even his enemies recognized that he was a miracle worker. We can read literature outside of the New Testament that describe him as a sorcerer or magician. They recognize that Jesus had supernatural power. We know that we, as Christians, know where that came from. Uh, but now, all of a sudden, he's crucified, doesn't save himself, and he dies. They see the darkness. Maybe they hear about the curtain. But they're still figuring it out, watching, trying to understand what happened. I think in some ways, friends, we fall into these categories as well. Um, Actually, you know, let me use it this way. There's, there's animals in Scripture. We'll use, the, we'll use the animals that they give us in Scripture. So, there are some who are the wolf. The wolf in Scripture is the enemy. The wolf in the Scripture are those who put him on the cross. Uh, the wolf in Scripture are the false teachers. Those who want to twist what happened. Those are those who are his enemies. And certainly there are people who look at the cross of Christ, who look at Jesus' death, and ultimately his resurrection, and say, not only do I not want any part of that, I want to do everything I can to oppose that. And make sure there's not, not a big deal is made of that. But then there are those who I think we would describe as the goats. Well, the scripture describes as the goats. These are people uh, who are not believers. And they see what happens. And maybe they say, poor Jesus. Sad what happened to him. And then they move on with life and say, where's my pizza? Or I'm going to save up for my new car. Or got to get back to work. Or whatever it is. It makes no lasting impact. But then there are the sheep. <laughs> there are those like, I think, ultimately these women who show up at the resurrection and certainly the centurion here, who behold it and say something of extreme and eternal importance has just happened here. That on that cross was not just another man dying, but the Son of God. On that cross came the great exchange of the gospel. My sin, which I have every right and need to bear myself before an all-holy God, has been transferred off of me and put on the righteous one. That Jesus is my sin-bearer. 1 John 2, 1-2. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
Christ on that cross created the greatest miracle of all. He took our place. As I mentioned, friends, I got the opportunity to walk around D.C. and uh, got a beautiful picture I took. So this is sitting on the Lincoln Memorial steps, looking out across the reflecting pond towards the Washington Monument. And then if you look in the little tiny thing sticking up at the back, that's the Capitol building. So it was built very carefully where you could see it. And I thought about how this is really the seat of power for our country. Uh, every building you go to, almost, is, is extremely significant, at least in that National Mall area. So you, you walk around, there's the FBI building. You know, you keep walking, there's the, we were literally sitting uh, in a hotel that was across from the Department of Education. It was right there. Uh, obviously the Capitol building, where all the senators and congressmen meet. And further down to the right of that um, monument is the, is the White House. And, and so but every building is so telling. Everything is sort of conglomerated into one spot. And of course, the Supreme Court, which has been on the news this last week a lot. But here's the thing. All that power, all that worldly power right there in that one area, as amazing as it is and as good as it is, like we just spent a week praying for it, so I'm not saying it's not important. It is important. None of that can change the human heart. It's all, all I can do is set up laws. I can set the boundaries. You know, Here's the rules of the game. You can obey, you can disobey. I can't make you obey them. I, I mean, I can lock you up in jail. I can, you know, but I can't make you do anything. I can't change you from within. But here's Jesus outside the city walls of Jerusalem, crucified as a criminal, dying our death so that we might become the righteousness of God, changing us from within, making new men and new women. Doing with all of the worldly powers, Caesar, President, Congress, Supreme Court, all of them could never do. He does in one act, as he dies for our sins. Pray with me. Our gracious God, even as we prepare for communion now, recognizing the broken body of our Savior and the shed blood of Christ in our behalf, Lord, we recognize that we need your grace. Uh, Even those here who have known you and followed you for 20, 30, 40, 50 years of our life, trusting in Jesus as Savior, every day we still come with the realization that outside of Christ, we'd bear our own guilt, would be responsible for our own sin, and would have to one day answer to you for it. But in Christ as Savior, that penalty has been paid that that guilt has been transferred off of us and onto Christ because he laid down his life willingly out of love for us to redeem us and save us. Lord, we do wonder and pray for any here who may not know Jesus as Savior. Uh, Maybe right now they're in the position of the crowds. Uh, They would say certainly that what a horrible thing to happen to another human being. Or maybe they're in the position of the centurion recognizing something of extreme significance has happened on the cross 2,000 years ago. We do pray, Father, that you would help them as they seek to understand more. You would provide the answers that they're looking for. You would show yourself to them more and more. So for each of us here, Lord, may this time in your word be a reminder to us of the gospel of grace, the center of the Christian faith, Lord, the greatest miracle of the Christian faith where our sin 
was put on your son to redeem us so that when we pass on from this life, we will be with you, not only for a time, but for eternity. We pray all this in the name of our Savior and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We prepare our hearts to celebrate.